The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Today's scripture reading is our sermon text this morning with is Matthew chapter 7. It's on the screen for you. Matthew chapter 7, and I'll read verses 7 through 11, which is also the text that we'll be preaching on this morning. This is the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's approach the Father in prayer. Father God, we ask right now that you would speak, O Lord, and let your kingdom come. And let your name be hallowed. And let your will be done in this gathering, in this sermon, as it is desired in heaven. And in it, Lord, accomplish what only you can accomplish. I have no ability in myself, but the Spirit working through the word can sow seed and give life and bear fruit. Please do that now for your glory and our good. In Christ I pray, amen. Prayer is a recurring theme in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus presents the Lord's Prayer, which we read earlier, but the verses that precede it, he says this striking comment, that those who pray, thinking that through the accumulation of their words or through the way that they approach God in their effort, their prayers are not heard. It's a striking and sobering thought that there are prayers of many whom God does not hear. In fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus says that all sorts of people pray, and all sorts of people give, and all sorts of people fast. But he says the prayers of those who are heard are heard for this reason, because they can pray with Jesus, our Father. Hence, prayer is empowered based on a relationship with the Father through the Son. So in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is teaching us is the content of what someone prays who knows the Father. If you know the Father, you pray like this. You pray these kinds of prayers. But now here in Matthew 7, Jesus teaches about prayer and the angle is a little bit different. If Matthew 6 was what you pray if you know the Father, Matthew 7 is why you pray if you know the Father. If you know the Father, you pray because of who he is. But let's start with an honest confession this morning. Who among us wanted to admit we could grow in our prayer life? All of us surely would have to confess our prayer relationship with the Father surely could improve. Let me acknowledge some reasons perhaps that our prayer life can struggle. One perhaps is misguided independence. This week, my daughter and my wife were at a store, if I have it correctly, they saw a t-shirt that said, God helps those who help themselves. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That concept, I think, misses it. And perhaps it flows out of this idea. You know, we have 
parents and our parents raise us to be independent. We raise our children to be independent. And at some point in the circle of life, the roles reverse, don't they? The children then take care of their parents who become like children to them. But see, our relationship with God is never like that. We never surpass him. There's never a moment where we are not helpless and he is not able. And so the relationship with him is not one where he wants to push us into independence, but one in which we constantly lovingly need our good father. Also, we'd have to admit, sometimes our prayer life wanes for seasons because of our own pride. Our own thought that apart from God, we can do something. When Jesus said, apart from me, (laughs) you can do nothing. Also, sometimes we give up praying because we feel like we've prayed and we've prayed and nothing has happened. And so if we're honest, for seasons at least, prayer can be like a dusty box in the corner of the attic. It's there and maybe if you need it, you'll rummage and find it. But God's intention for us in prayer is that prayer be like that irreplaceable tool that you need to do what you need to do every day. If you're a handyman, it's like your hammer. If you're an office worker, it's like your computer. If you're a surfer, it's like your board. (laughs) You can't exist without this. And that is why Jesus in Matthew 7 will urge us to pray. So three very simple points today that I'll give to you. I think they'll be on the screen as well. But just to make them as simple as I can for you as you follow along. This passage is only five verses long. Here are the three things Jesus will do. First, Jesus will urge us to pray. Second, Jesus will assure us of an answer. And third, Jesus will tell us about the character of God that should invite us to pray. So now number one, Jesus will urge us to pray. And please look in God's word in Matthew 7, verse 7. With only five verses, you know, we're going to take time looking at all the words in there. So Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Ask, seek, and knock are present tense imperative verbs, meaning they're commands that are to be repeated over and over and over again. You could translate it this way faithfully. Continue to ask. Continue to seek. Continue to knock. Christ is calling on us to continue to ask, seek, and knock. And I say us because the word you, Y-O-U, is in the second person plural. He's encouraging us to ask, seek, and knock together as we approach our Father. Notice all three of those words indicate that you're moving towards someone in need. If you have to go ask someone something, you need help and you're moving towards them. If you seek someone, you are making a move towards them because you know you need them. If you knock, you're trying to get in to the person you're trying to see. So all three of these words mean to move towards someone who has an ability that you stand in need of. Ask, seek, and knock, and do so consistently. Notice all of the answers are you will find, or it will be given to you, or it will be open, meaning that that other person is the one who provides the answer for you. But don't miss this. Did you notice that all three of the answers are future? Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open. Here's what that means. These answers won't come unless you first pray. Until you ask, it can't be given. (laughs) Until you seek, you can't find. And until you knock, it won't be opened. Ask, seek, and knock persistently, consistently knowing that the person who is able to give the good answer will give it 
in his perfect time. And with the you, Jesus urges us to all pray together. Now quickly, number two, verse eight. Jesus assures us of an answer. What a wonderful verse this is. He already said, you will find and it will be opened and you will receive. But now in case you missed it, he presses it again in verse eight. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Everyone is placed first in the word in the Greek because it's in emphasis. The point is that no believer who knows the father will slip through the cracks in this promise. All who know the father who ask, seek and knock will receive an answer. But let me give some quick clarifiers because this is the kind of passage that could be abused by a certain type of teacher. To be clear, Jesus is not advocating that we treat God as a genie who we can manipulate to fulfill our bidding. And how do we know that? Did did we not all read aloud together the Lord's Prayer when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So surely when Jesus told us what to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, he would know that here in Matthew 7, we know we're not trying to get our bidding done where we manipulate the genie. We're trying to trust God's good wisdom. And so here when we pray, we're praying things with persistence, we're praying things with faith, but we're praying things like, God, may your name be made more holy. God, may your kingdom advance. God, may your will be done. Lord, please meet my daily needs. Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Lord, please deliver me from temptation. Jesus is, of course then, not teaching us to force God to do our bidding. No, he's teaching us to trust God's goodness as a ground for our praying. So if Jesus urges us to pray and assures us to pray, now third, he does so based on who God the Father is. So look now in verses 9 through 11. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good gifts to those who ask him. Of course, bread and fish were the staple diet of first century life. So Jesus here is saying, if you were to ask for regular daily needs, most parents, generally speaking, not all, but most, will provide those. They won't play a cruel trick on you. They'll provide what you ask for, and you are evil. So then how much more will the perfectly, infinitely good Heavenly Father provide, notice, good gifts? See, Jesus is trying to press to us God's goodness because he knows what is fundamentally at stake here is our picture of God. Each one of us in this room, based on a complex matrix of factors, where you grew up, what your parents were like, what books you read, what your life experiences have been like, you have your own picture of what God is like. It's based on all sorts of experiences and factors. In your mind, you visualize God to be a certain way, to have a certain sort of character. See, what's at stake in our prayer life and what can impede it is what we visualize God to be. Let me tell you some common ones that keep us from praying. Some people view God as sort of a reluctant stranger that if you go and twist his arm just the right way, then maybe he'll give you what you ask for. 
Other people picture God as a malicious tyrant who likes to play tricks on you. I saw a commercial for, I think an insurance company, where there's a man holding a fisherman's pole and at the end of the pole, there's a dollar and he holds it out in front of someone and every time they go to reach for it, he pulls it up and says, you gotta be quicker than that. <laughs> Some people picture God that way too. He, he probably has things for me, but he just pulls them back because he just doesn't give me what I really need. This is a, a true story, unfortunately. There was a, a man I knew, he was a, a grandparent age and he, he became very sick and he was bedridden. And while he was bedridden, there were checks from his pension that would be cashed for him and laid on his counter. And one of his grandchildren would come into the house ostensibly to visit his grandfather, but when his grandfather was asleep, he would steal the money off of his counter. Some people view God that way. I think the best example in the Old Testament is Jacob. I can't trust God to, to bless me, so maybe if I steal the blessing, <laughs> maybe if I manipulate circumstances just the right way, then I'll get from God what he never would have given me. If I don't figure out how to move the scenario for my own best interest, there's no way God has my best interest in mind. But actually, what God is trying to show us here in verse 11 is that there is a Father in heaven who loves to give good gifts to those who ask. See, the heart of this passage is what you view God to be like. If in the Lord's Prayer, the emphasis is on what to pray, here in Matthew 7, the emphasis is on why you should pray. And you should pray because you have a good father who loves to give good gifts. So ask and seek and knock. The Bible tells us in James 4, two reasons prayer is not answered. There are other reasons, but there are two in this passage. Here's the first one. Do you know it? You have not because you ask not. One reason, according to the Bible, that we do not receive is because we do not ask. Here in this passage, Jesus warns us of the same danger. So he three times says, ask, seek, knock. There's another reason that we sometimes don't receive an answer to prayer, and that is also in James 4. Not only does he say, you have not because you ask not, but then in the next verse he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lust. Jesus is warning about that here as well, implicitly when he says, trust the Father to give good gifts. Those are the only kind of gifts he gives. So you don't have to worry about manipulating him with wrong desires. We ask and we ask with proper trust in God's goodness, so pray persistently. But did you notice Jesus does not tell us when the answer will come? Let me tell you something God's been working in my own heart and convicting me about lately. On Wednesday nights, we've been working through the book of Nehemiah. And this past Wednesday, we finished Nehemiah chapter 12. And Nehemiah, if you're not very familiar with the book, here's the basic overview. The people of God are in disarray. The city of God is in ruins and the temple of God is destroyed. And God uses Nehemiah to revitalize the people, to rebuild the walls and to restore the worship of God at the temple. And in chapter 12, we're at the climax of all of this labor. And for the climax, there are two choirs that march around the entire city walls that have now newly been rebuilt and they sing and they chant. And for me, with a vivid imagination as I'm reading, I can picture the Macy's Day parade and all of the noise and all of the cheering and all of the circumstance. And then at the end, they come back to the temple and everybody applauds and it's this wonderful experience. But see, the victory for that day did not happen in Nehemiah 12. It happened in Nehemiah 1, 
when Nehemiah by himself in accordance with God's word prayed and fasted privately for four months. See what God has been convicting me about on Wednesday nights and reminding me of. He doesn't tell us when the answer will come. But see, brothers and sisters, the victory is not that day where the choirs sing and everybody knows it. The victory are those private moments when there are no choirs and there are no crowds and there is no cheering, but you ask and you seek and you knock and you ask and you seek and you knock and you trust that God will bring to bear what he promises he will do. See, the victory is when no one's there. So we keep praying. How long should you keep praying, you ask? And I know this is a very personal question because I, in my own life, have prayed for things that I thought were good things in line with God's word that God wasn't granting, and so I wondered, how long should I pray? Not too long ago, my daughter came to my wife and I, and she said, Mommy and Daddy, how long can I keep praying for something before I should stop? And we said, you should pray till the end. You can keep praying until either God takes away the desire or until God answers it or until God calls you home. And then we said, so what are you praying for? She said, I'm praying for a little sister. (laughs) And that really challenged my theology. (laughs) That would be an amazing miracle that... uh, that we're not sure we want to have happen. But, but we were excited to see her desire to pray. So on a serious note, I want to remind you that when you pray, don't give up when you're praying in accord with God's word. And trust this. In a given thing you're praying about, God is probably doing 10,000 different things. And you might be aware of two of them. To give you an example, there's a lady in Michigan that's a close friend of ours. And she, when she was young, she was a Christian, but she was fleeing from God, as sometimes Christians even do. She was rebellious to the Lord, didn't want to obey the Lord, wanted to spite her parents, and so she purposely married someone who was unsaved, living a period of very much rebellion in her life. And like a lot of people who have been in a situation like that, a few years in, the Lord started to soften her heart, and she started to come back to the Lord, but now she's still married to this person who does not know Christ. And so she has this burden on her heart. God has brought me back to repentance, but my husband who I live with does does not know the Lord. And it made for a very, very hard life for her. And so she was praying for her husband to be saved. And she went through that cycle you've probably been through too. You're praying for something that you know is good. You know it's in accord with God's will, but it seems like it's hopeless. And so for a couple Years, you're, you're devoted and then you give up and then you have a few more seasons and then you just feel like it's never gonna happen. So for 28 years, she keeps praying and praying and praying for her husband to be saved. And I think it was three years ago on Christmas Eve, her husband came to our pastor and said to him, I don't know what's been going on, but I am broken and I have to know Christ. And that next Sunday, he came down the aisle after 28 years of private prayer and publicly professed Christ as his Savior. And when I talked to that lady afterwards, she said this, those were hard 28 years. But what God taught me at first, every time I would read the Bible, I would say, see, he needs to learn this. Or every time I would pray, I'd say, see, that's what he needs. And finally, over 28 years, the Lord told me, no, that's what you need too. And I need to work it through you to show it to him. So don't miss that the persistent ask, seek, and knock has multiple things God's doing through them, and one of them is changing you. 
We must never presume that God will grant apart from prayer what he has ordained from eternity past to only grant through prayer. And part of that is our own growth. But let me give you another practical question and answer. How can you know if you're asking for a good gift? What if you've been asking for that private thing that's such a burden on your heart and you've asked for it for years and now you're wondering, should I even be asking for this? How can I know if it's a good gift? And and let me give you two very practical things that hopefully will be helpful to you to bear in mind. Here's the first. Never, ever underestimate the goodness of your heavenly father. Never underestimate the sheer goodness of your heavenly father. If you've had a good earthly father or if you've had a bad earthly father, neither of those should be the ultimate template for how you view God. Verse 11 should be the ultimate template for how you view God. You have a father in heaven who loves to give good gifts. But secondly, let me tell you something my my wife and I did as we were praying for hard things that we weren't sure what to do. And, And I This is maybe the most practical thing I could encourage you to do. When you're reading the Bible in the morning or in the evening on a daily basis, pray the Bible. Pray the biblical passage you're in. Pray it to God. And you know what will happen? Just like a child who first learns to draw when he's coloring by number, over time when you pray the Bible, you'll learn to pray within the lines. And then you'll have a better and better sense of what is in accord with God's heart because You'll know the word and then you'll know your Lord and then you'll pray what God desires and you'll know how his will is done and he'll accomplish through you what only he can do. Now the theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount over and over again is the fatherhood of God. Many people are religious. Many people in America are religious from a superficial standpoint, but a relationship with God is a supernatural work of God and it's a work of grace. And it means that we have access to God himself. This week I read about a man who worked in the Bush administration at the White House. And when he would go to the White House, he had to pass 17 security checks before he could even get near the Oval Office. 17 security checks every day just to move about the building that you work in. But do you remember those pictures from when John F. Kennedy was the president? And at his foot is John Jr., two years old, playing at the foot of the oval desk. You see, when God is your father, you don't need 17 security checks because Christ has opened the door so that you can come with confidence to the throne of grace. It is an amazing thought that you and I can approach the father. So don't diminish how great the father is and don't diminish how wonderful his grace is that you now have access And that access came at a cost. So look in verse 11, where this is at least implied. Look at how verse 11 begins. If you, though you are evil. Do you see what Jesus just said about the entire human race? (laughs) We are all evil. But did you notice that he excluded himself? He excluded himself intentionally. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. See, all of us are evil, so we don't deserve access to the Father. So how could we ever have access to the Father? And the answer is the one and only person who's perfectly innocent took our sin 
so that he could remove it, nailing it to the cross, so that we could be granted access where we don't belong, but we are now gifted through the Son's perfect life and death in our place. One person maybe grasped this better than any other person in the Bible. On the day Jesus was crucified, his cross was put in the middle between two other crosses. And those two other crosses had criminals on them. Isaiah prophesied this in chapter 53 when it said he would be numbered among the transgressors. And so on Calvary, the son of God, perfectly innocent, Jesus Christ is being crucified between two criminals. And do you know what happened? The one criminal on the one side started to laugh and mock Jesus and say, well, why can't you get get us down from the cross? Why can't you get yourself down from the cross if you really are who you say you are? But then the other criminal said this. He rebuked the criminal making fun of Jesus and said, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And then he said this very insightful verse. This is Luke 22, verse 41. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. This criminal got it. We are evil. We deserve this death because the wages of sin is death. But then he said this. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. See, he understood that we are evil, but he is totally innocent. And on that basis, he prayed the first prayer that God ever hears from anybody. He said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave this beautiful promise, one that I've thought of much this week as we've had multiple funerals. Jesus said, truly I say to you, This day, you will be with me in paradise. You see, the access to the Father comes at the cost of the innocent Son because all of us are evil. And so the first prayer for anyone to pray that will be heard is, God, though I am evil, forgive me because he is innocent. And may his innocence be placed on me through faith and may I find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. But now let me return to something I left hanging earlier. Verse seven, all the yous are in the second person plural. They're all talking about not each one of us praying privately, but us as followers of Christ praying together. So please let me talk with you about something I'm very, very burdened about. The Bible tells us repeatedly that when the church gathers to pray together, something powerfully happens that does not happen when we're separate. 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul tells the church of Corinth, you helped me through the prayers of many, meaning that because of the many, God worked through the prayers more powerfully. Acts 2 verse 42 says the early church was devoted to prayer. In Acts 4, when Peter and John were arrested, the church said this in Acts 4, verse 23. When they heard it, we lifted our voices together to God. Now, here's what's happened in America in the last 30 years. American churches hardly ever pray together. There was a time in our country when a midweek prayer partnership was immovable. It was a key block. You couldn't get around it. And then youth sports and then Boy Scouts, and then you could go to Michael's and work on a craft or something like that. And then thing after thing after thing after thing, and then no longer did the church break out of time to pray. Now I understand schedules change, I understand things happen, 
But I cannot be a faithful pastor to you if I do not call you to what Scripture calls us to. Emmanuel, we must gather to pray together. We must. I'm willing to be as flexible as I can about the when. Maybe Wednesday nights really don't work. Maybe we'll do Sunday nights. I don't know. What I know is this. The church has to convene and pray. It has to. That is how God works. God does not work if we do not ask and we do not seek and we do not knock together. I honestly don't know for sure what happened that caused us as a country to abandon prayer. But can I tell you something? When we approach the Father, he will give us something you can't find at Michael's and you can't find on the youth soccer field and you can't find on the normal television programmings of the evening. I assure you of this. There is nothing more wonderful or transcendental that can be accomplished that can't be done apart from prayer. So may the church come and pray to the Father who gives. But ultimately, may the church remember that the most important prayer life is not ours. Because before Jesus told that thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise, do you know what he prayed while he was being crucified? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Peter betrayed him, do you know what Jesus said? I have prayed for you, Peter, so that your faith would not fail, because Satan desired to sift you like wheat. And do you know what Romans 8 tells us? We have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Our ultimate hope is the faithfulness of our Lord. And through him, let us come boldly to the throne of grace where we can always have mercy and help in time of need. Let me pray for us now. Dear God, it has been a great conviction to me to return to a passage on prayer when you know better than anyone how badly I wander from praying. There have been seasons where by your grace alone I have asked and I've sought and I've knocked, but Lord, there have been seasons where I've been proud and prayerless and forgotten to come before you and realize that apart from you I can do nothing. So I thank you for a passage where Jesus doesn't beat us down. He just reminds us we have such a good father and he's a better father than we could ever hope or dream and certainly ever deserve. But just like we couldn't enter the office of the president without security checks, we could not enter the throne of God unless we become a son. But Lord, the way that you make us sons and daughters is astounding. It's not by something we could have earned. We've disqualified ourselves through our own sin. We're all evil. It's by your perfect son taking our place. Thank you, Lord, that he could pray on our behalf and that all who come now and pray in his name are saved. Lord, I pray on the basis of Jesus Christ that you would help us to ask and seek and knock and watch our Father do great and mighty things. But Lord, I'm burdened for all churches in our country, but you've tasked me with the privilege to be an under-shepherd here. And Lord, I pray for Emmanuel, let us not forsake prayer together. Let us not forsake the importance of pouring out our souls together to God. And a trust that you will do the things only you can do if your people will humble ourselves and seek your face. So Lord, 
hallow your name in Raleigh. Let your kingdom come through Emmanuel. Lord, deliver us from our temptations. Forgive us from our sins. Meet our daily needs. But in all things, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And remind us when we feel like we're going to give up praying and when we feel like there's no hope that we need to ask and we need to seek and we need to knock because it will be opened and the answer will be given and we will find and the Father will give a good gift even if it's not what we expected it to be. But he will always give the good gift that is actually best for our good and his glory. We come through the only name that we can come, Lord. We come in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.